Record covers seem to have punctuated our lives in so many ways. They remind us of where we were, what we were doing, who we were with. They mark our student days, our holidays, our growing up and our coming of age. Welcome to the Art of the Album podcast, brought to you by Hypergallery. I'm Emily, and in each episode I will be interviewing an artist, photographer or designer responsible for some of the most memorable cover images and some of the most unusual treasures to have graced record releases in the last seven decades. Talk Talk, The Party's Over, by James Marsh. Imagine, you are a designer working on various projects, some exciting, some more run-of-the-mill, and one day you are handed a job. It's an album cover for a new band. They don't want to use a photo. Can you come up with something? You have free reign. Just such a conversation with a friend was the beginning of a journey that left James Marsh inextricably linked to the aesthetic of the band in question. Talk Talk. And in fact to the visual story of the era of which they were part, the 1980s. The album marked the beginning of a decade-long relationship so rewarding and long-lasting that it is woven all the way through the fabric of Marsh's life as an artist. It must be the stuff of dreams. I knew Keith Aspen, who was their manager, um, already. Uh, he was a, a friend. And um, it was one weekend. We uh, we were just chatting at his house, actually, when he lived in um, Sussex. Um, and he, he confided in me that he was thinking about managing uh, a band. And uh, he didn't really know what to do with them in terms of presenting and um that that was his dilemma and he asked me basically if i'd like to think about about the the prospect really of doing something uh a way of presenting them that was that was the how the, the job came about in the first place i mean that if it's paid work is a joy of a commission you haven't heard the music but you've had a bit of a brief you come up with a design they love you go on to make more single covers and album covers, adjustments for print marketing. Your work becomes the visual embodiment of the music. More so than the live or tour photography. More so than the magazine shoots. And more so than any more than a handful of your contemporaries, past or future, could hope to achieve. It's really very unusual. The Party's Over was released in 1982. There were some great images hitting the record stands that year. Craftworks, The Man Machine, Roxy Music's Avalon, The Gift by The Jam, 
Broken Frame by Depeche Mode and there were a couple of hypnosis design covers in the charts too but the musical landscape was peppered with striking band or star portraiture. The new romantic movement ruled the charts and since MTV had launched only a year before how you looked was becoming as important as how you sounded. The press release for the second single on the album the track that gave the band its name, Talk Talk opens with the statement The music business is a fashion business, before going on to declare Talk Talk as a band breaking through on music alone. Following the success of that single, though, Talk Talk could easily have been pushed into a very different aesthetic. Well, I think initially the, the, the record company thought that was their sort of slot in the music genre, uh, but I don't think they wanted to be pigeonholed. It's just that they were doing very poppy things at that particular time. And I suppose that they wouldn't have had any success if they hadn't have had some sort of success with their first single, uh, which was very poppy. And they they quickly moved away from that in terms of the musical style, as, as most people know. But um, so I guess they were they were also seen to be the next Duran Duran, which they always hated, of course, um, being likened to them. So that, I think there was an automatic reflex action to try and steer away from that image right from the beginning. The, the, I think the whole premise was, the brief I was given, that was that um, the band didn't want to be represented in a stereotypical way actually uh, which most bands were being represented at the time by well just having photographs of the band on the cover you know that that's simply that I didn't think I don't think they wanted to be seen as um, you know cover boys you know pinups or um, for you know going along with that general idea of pretty boys you know boy band type thing so that's where I came in. I, you know, I was providing the image, if you like, for the band, which sidestepped all those issues for for them, uh, particularly Mark. He was very keen not to do that. So I suppose the directive was coming directly from him. Talk Talk weren't unique in wanting to present themselves differently, but it is safe to say that what Marsh came up with was quite unlike anything else on the racks. His work didn't just hit the record shops that year, it became something that the band's fans are also fans of. His work is synonymous with the sound of Talk Talk, and it has survived. Just as Mark Hollis, Talk Talk's lead singer and songwriter, had hoped. You could say that in receiving the brief, James Marsh was handed a gift, but he had to know what to do with it for it to become so iconic. I, I didn't really give it too much thought, to be fair. I, I just thought, well, I haven't got much to go on here. I just went with the idea of the, the name of the band, Talk Talk, and thought I could do something with, with that idea. So that's how the mouth, the lips came about. Um, just my sort of lateral thinking, really. Um, and I also felt that if I did something non-specific like that just just representing a face um the eyes for the lips for the eyes 
uh, as well. That that really emphasised the idea of talk talk to me because there was two two um, two sets of lips for the eyes. So it's I suppose it's about sound and vision in in a sort of oblique way, but um, I also saw it being on a white background something that could almost work like a logo in many ways and in fact uh, it did adapt quite well for doing ab you know ads and various promotional stuff um, so it, it worked you know on, on many levels I suppose as a kind of icon. Marsh played with the band's name Talk Talk giving them two sets of lips for eyes a visual pun a play on words, something that was about sound and vision, so being universal in its imagery, transcending the style of the era and even transcending the band itself. Although the imagery does evoke, for me at least, and perhaps for everyone familiar with it, the 1980s, I feel that's because of its high visibility at the time rather than because it falls into some cliched neon sign, spray paint, blue eyeshadow cartoon of the decade because it could have been made today. And Marsh's intention to make it almost logo-like was a canny and modern idea. He created an identity for the band, replacing their faces as such, and adaptable as an identity to be transferred into artwork for the album's singles and used for different formats beyond the record itself. Marsh took his brief higher or deeper than likely even the band could have hoped for. The singles that followed took the components of the album sleeve, perhaps incorporating other references specific to the songs, starting with the third single from the album, Today. Um, so it echoed the album cover in many ways, and... Um, you know, literally a direct link to the to the album with the three mounts. Uh, but there was also the added bit on here, which I might would be worth explaining on the the blood drop, which is um, forms part of the um, addition to the lips, is a reference to heroin, <clears throat> um, which is mentioned in the lyrics. Um, well, not specifically, but that was that was kind of part of the. I mean, it's a double A side, I suppose. But that was that was the, that was the reference to heroin, um, and I think Mark's, um, as I understood it, Mark's brother died of heroin overdose. So there's maybe he. I, I I'm not sure if he was singing about that particularly, but. Um, that was the reference I was picking up on. So I did think about it as a kind of series of, of images relating to the album. The, the next one was um, My Foolish Friend, which again was forming part of the face. So um, that's that was what the image was like. But I, I was also... The eye, the eye with it was like a clown's eye, really referencing my, the foolish part of the title. Um, so that was the context of that one. 
But again, everything was on a white background, so it all gelled together quite well, I think, um, forming a, a consist consistent theme. It was an ambitious project. He gave them a face, quite literally, a face to present to the world. It is a surreal face, too. When I look at this image, I can't help but think of the glass tears, Lilam, of 1932, by Dada artist Man Ray. Rather like the glass tears of Man Ray's model, this composite reads as a face, but it's an illusion, an artifice that stands in for the real thing. It's worth knowing about Marsh's design background to understand how he took that initial brief and really thought about the end use, not just as an album cover on a 12-inch square, but as branding and as a surrogate for the band. My background training as a designer, you know, I tend to come at illustrations from a designer's point of view, which is quite unusual, I suppose. Most artists are, you know, are, are not thinking that way around. Uh, but, I, but I've always had quite a strong vision of, uh, of how I want an image to end up you know, and how it's going to be applied. I mean, I, I left uh, college in the mid-60s um, and moved to London to find work, basically. So I've been working since the 60s. I, I only worked for a year in total, um, but that ha just happened to be for two record companies. So I cut my teeth doing album cover work and design and learned the whole process of... Uh, of album that's how I got into illustration actually because I was um I was seeing myself more as a designer but um when I worked at Decca Records particularly moving on from Pi Records um you were given photographs to use on album covers um and if there wasn't anything supplied by a band then you had to come up with something so that was a that was a treat really that was the time to be creative and that's how I got into illustration after that first I only worked for a year for the two companies after that I I, I moved I worked for a, a year with Alan Aldridge in the 60s I started doing model making work then and that led me to doing my own forming my own studio and I did that for 8 years so that was the mid 70s and then I went completely freelance from then on, 75, 76. And uh, so I'd been working for a while um, in the style I'm known for from that period on, I suppose. I should note that Marsh's intention for the album cover was only fully realised in the release of the third single, Today. The album cover had been in my view at least, compromised by the label. In this particular case, um, I saw the album cover on a white background, but the, the um, EMI ended up putting a grey border around it, which uh, wasn't my choice. Uh, and it, it was used on the single as I intended, actually, a 12-inch single without a grey border. But I think they might have done that just to differentiate between the two, except the album came first, and uh, theoretically that should have been without the border. So, who knows what uh, you know what what decisions were made 
but I wasn't dis I wasn't involved in the um, decision making at that stage. Um, but these are the sort of things that happen when it's not all within your control. Mark Hollis had said that he wanted Talk Talk's music to be relevant, or at least listenable, in 20 years' time. Well, 40 years later, I think it's fair to say he achieved that, and, by chance or design, he came together with an artist whose work has done the same. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to the Hypergallery YouTube channel where you can find the full video interview along with a tour of James Marsh's wonderful studio on the top floor of his home in Hythe on the east coast of England. <laughs>